to Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Black Light listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners, supporters, fans. We have so many people listening all across the United States and outside the United States, and we just want to extend our deepest gratitude for your support. We are blessed that we are able to share all of these stories and experiences with our community of listeners to keep informing one another as well as the state actors that we as the people demand a change. We will no longer stand for you to treat our communities unjustly and that we will begin or are beginning to build something new that works for everybody. Um, So this morning I have um, a guest on. His name is Philip Smith. Philip is currently incarcerated at Nash Correctional, and he is also the editor of the Nash News, which is a publication created and produced entirely by the Nash Correctional residents. And he also works at the Correctional Enterprise Print Plant. Phil will share his story, his journey as to how he became a product of the system. And he will also share with you all of the amazing accolades that he has been able to accomplish while being in prison. And I just can't wait for you to hear the story. Phil is a good role model of true rehabilitation. And it's sad that many of them have to rehabilitate themselves because prison is supposedly used to rehabilitate and help people change their life around. But we know prison makes people worse, especially if you don't have your mindset that you won't let that system make you a bad person or deteriorate your mind because we know prison is a bad culture and the culture that these people live in, you can be a product of that culture. And so Philip and many, many others I know have really done a good job of rehabilitating themselves and making a way for themselves to get out of prison. So I am so honored to be able to share this guest with you. He will be calling in in a few and we will get ready to hear Phil's story. All right, Black Light listeners, as promised, uh, Phil has called in. So I want to introduce Philip Smith. And Philip, you can introduce, you know, tell the audience whatever, you know, you want to let them know. Introduce yourself and then we'll go from there. Uh, how you doing? My name is Philip Van Smith II. I've been incarcerated in North Carolina for 22 years. I'm an accomplished writer. That's about it. I just do what I can to keep going every day. Well, thank you, Philip, for agreeing to come on here and share your story with the listeners. Um, I want you to first start off with, you know, kind of not in detail, but how you got where you are. Well, like most young black men uh, got caught up in an identity that wasn't mine, trying to be something that I wasn't, it led me to prison. I ended up uh, 
being convicted of murder in 2002, and I was sentenced to life without parole. I've been in prison ever since. All right, Phil. So you kind of want to give them a little background of your accomplishments after incarceration and how you were able to rehabilitate yourself? Well, like anyone else, I, I quickly learned uh, upon entry to prison that rehabilitation is not something that actually exists. What you have to become is a self-motivator. I had a lot of hobbies when I came in. I wanted to learn how to write. I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. So I spent most of my time focusing on those things. I had my friends and family order books, and I honed my craft the best that I could. There were times when I would sit in the cell for hours writing, trying to understand not just who I was, but how I got to this place in my life and to become better so that I didn't make the same mistakes. And as a result, I became a better writer. And those hours, you know, writing to myself paid off. And now uh, I've been published in magazines, North Carolina Law Review, online journals, newspapers. And, uh, pretty, I have a pretty good published in history. Well, let's talk about the Nash News. Um, I know that you were a big reason why the Nash News was started. Can you tell us about the Nash News and how it got started and why? Uh, actually, I was not here when it was started. The Nash News was started in 2005 by two other people, incarcerated people, Brian Scott and um, Mike Krasinski. I came to Nash in 2005. I went on staff to Nash News in 2015, and I started out just uh, as a, I worked in the graphic design department at the print plant here in Correction Enterprise, and the Nash News was a project that they allowed us to do, and so I started out just typing articles, helping out the graphic designer, and you know, I became a journalist and assistant editor, and, and now I sit as editor. And it's my job to oversee everything, what articles are published, design, layout, and to be a voice for the people who are here. So how did how were you able to, because you first started off working in the, the graphics department, how were you able to level yourself up to where you are now? Because that's not easy, being in prison. Well, no, it's not. I think for me, I first went into correction enterprise because I needed money, and it provided a, a way for me to survive. You know, at the time I was making uh, 28 cents an hour, I think, which was about 16, 17 dollars a week, and so I, I sought that opportunity just for that. And then along the way, I realized that I'm pretty good at, at things that I had never tried before, like graphic design. At the time I hadn't touched a computer in 10, 15 years sitting down, learning from the other guys that were around me, I was able to, to realize my potential in a way that I, I would not have been able to do so without being a part of Correction Enterprise. And so that opportunity, in a sense, is like a stepping stone, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a goal to say, okay, I want to be the editor of the Nash News. The opportunity was there. I took it. And I ended up becoming the editor. So, you know, a lot of people, especially in prison, 
we consider working for corrective enterprise a form of slavery. And also, I think we, that people could be paid more. But there are some opportunities that I think everyone should take a part of, take part in, rather. Right, because it teaches you things that you, first, it, it kind of brings a perspective of, of what you can do and what you can't do. And then, two, it also pushes you to go after things that you never thought to, that you could do, even though it is considered a part of the correctional enterprise. Sometimes it brings out talents that you never knew that you had. Like, for instance, you, when you said that, you know, you just started writing. And so being able to write and then go from graphic design to actually being an editor is is what pushed you. So you having that little bit of experience in the correctional enterprise pushed you to be a writer. And now you, like you said, you're being published. I know that Phil has done a couple of things for Emancipate. You can check him out on our website. He's on our website. Um, he attends our poetic uh, events that we have each year for the past two years. Phil has been a part of that and has had some wonderful poems. People love his poems. So I would definitely suggest that you check out the poems that he has done for Emancipate on our website. But Phil, just tell us, I know that you and a guy named Tim wrote a bill can you tell us about that bill and how you you two were able to accomplish that bill without having a law library? Because let me remind you, North Carolina did not have a law library until last year. So it was kind of hard to be able to look up case studies and things of that nature. But can you just tell them how you were able to accomplish that and, and why and what it meant to you? Sure. Uh, first, let me explain the difficulty. Imagine uh, you're, on a, you're on a desert island and there's a helicopter. And in order to get off this island, you have to fly the helicopter, but there are no instructions. So what do you do? You sit in it and you start pushing buttons to try to figure out how to make this thing go. And you're going to run the risk of crashing. That's, that's just the reality. That's what it's like to take on a legal endeavor in a prison system with no law library, first off. So I have a life sentence, and Tim is serving a life sentence. And I was talking to a guy after a friend of mine had uh, committed a, you know, an attempt of act of violence, and I was thinking to myself, like, man, if that guy hadn't had life, he had another opportunity. He would not have done that. And so me and the guy were going back and forth, and I said, somebody should write a bill that would give people who have life, you know, who have been ex ex shown exceptional behavior, to give them an opportunity to get out of prison. And the more that I thought about it, I said, well, why don't I write? So I went in my cell and I started fleshing out just the idea, and I needed help. I couldn't, I couldn't do it on my own. I just had the idea. So I went and I asked him if he would help me. It took some convincing, but uh, he helped me out. We sat down and we wrote a proposal. And uh, to write the bill, I went around gathering information from other people that I was incarcerated with. There were some guys that, that were juvenile lifers and they had copies of existing bills that you know, had been in front of the General Assembly. And so I looked at, at that form and I thought to myself, okay, I should be able to, to recreate this in my own way. Um, and so at the time I was in school, I went to our online library and I found a book that taught you how to write a bill. And I sat down with those materials and Tim and we fleshed out our idea. And uh, we were lucky enough to get it in the hands of legislators. And in 2021, they introduced it as 
House Bill 697. It is the Prison Resources Repurposing Act. Uh, this year, it was killed in that session. And this year, uh, our friend lobbyist Christy Puckett Williams was able to obtain sponsorship again. And so now in, in the 2023 legislative session, it is House Bill 126. Very excited about this possibility. That is amazing because, as you said before, it's extremely hard to write a bill when you have when you don't have the materials to write the bill, which is a law library so that you can look up case law in other states and even North Carolina. And so that is amazing that you two were able to sit down and come up with the bill, flush everything out and come up with the bill and then present it to where it actually got sponsorship. And so can you tell us why you felt the need to really push this bill and how it could help others? Well, you know, a lot of things in my life kind of combine into one experience-wise. So when I look around, I see men who don't have opportunities. And, and what I mean is they may not have the opportunity to work in correction enterprise because of a past mistake. Maybe they committed violence, institutional violence, they can't get a job there. Or maybe they don't write well, so they can't become a part of the Nash News. And I realized that 90% of the time we are immersed in negative energy and, and we do negative things because we don't have the opportunity to do something positive. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't exist. You know, literally in this, this prison where I'm at, there's 97 people on this cell block. I would say, you know, half have jobs or are going to prison. But the other half, they don't have anything to do. All they have is the library, the telephone, the TV, and the basketball. So I think we needed more opportunities. So what Tim and I did was we looked at the existing programs like, uh, you know, the GED, the few college programs that we have, opportunities for correction enterprise, incentive wage jobs, and we put them into a tiered structure so that they could work for rehabilitative benefits so that people could work a plan that would actually help reform them. And, of course, the, the one main thing is you have to stay out of trouble. You mm -hmm. have to stay out of trouble for at least a period of 15 to 20 years, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, but you have to look for those opportunities to better yourself. And we thought that would make not just the prison system better, but society as a whole. I definitely agree. Because, you know, we don't have any good time bills or anything that really gives people incentive to get themselves together and rehabilitate themselves so they can come home. So a lot of people in prison just feel helpless. And that's where you have, that's, that's where it comes in where you see they just don't have any hope. So they're just watching TV all day or on the tablet all day or getting in and out of trouble because they feel like they're hopeless, like they will never go home because there's no plan. So with this bill, it gives you an incentive to say, hey, let me let me go to school or let me make sure I stay out of trouble just so that you can have that opportunity. We have the MAP program. And when, when you call back, I want you to explain the MAP program and how your bill would kind of replace the MAP program because not everybody, the way the MAP program is now, a lot of people still aren't getting that opportunity to go home. And the MAP program is if you do have a life sentence, you will eventually have a date as long as you do a, B, C, and D. 
but still a lot of people do that and still get denied for the MAP program. So when you call back, I want you to explain the MAP program and how your bill could replace that. Are you feeling unheard after a negative encounter with a law enforcement officer, sheriff, or correctional officer? Visit the Emancipate NC website to report your encounter. Any individual can use the Emancipate NC form to report a police encounter, upload video, photographs, or other evidence, and share their information with the U.S. Today's National Police Misconduct Database. Share it with your friends and family members and community. Our communities have the wisdom and the data we need to keep us safe from rude police. By crowdsourcing this information, we will be able to analyze departmental trends, mobilize campaigns for accountability, and file more effective litigation. Remember, we keep us safe. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. All right, we got Phil back. As I said before, the phone hung up. Um, just kind of explain to us the MAP program and how your bill could replace the MAP program, but with better success. So, in 1994, North Carolina eliminated parole, but they still had a plethora of people who were eligible for parole. Many of those people had life sentences. Life sentence parole was a lot different than regular parole. So in the early 2000s, they created the Mutual Agreement Parole Program to help release those people, but they didn't want to release them without any stipulations. And they wanted to make sure they were released as people who were considered safe. So when they came up with the Mutual Agreement Parole Program, they came up with a plan where you would sign an agreement for one to three years. And in that agreement, you would have to work a job and, you know, just specify things like work here, you can get to another prison, you work here, you make minimum custody, maybe you would work for work release for a year and then you get out. Right. So what Tim and I did was we restructured the MAP program so that it could apply to people who were serving life without parole. Because currently, under the Structured Sentencing Act of 1994, people who are serving life without parole are not eligible for release whatsoever. And so how it would work, in the future, would be the same way. Uh, you come to prison, stay out of trouble for five years. Uh, Raleigh would assess your behavior, your vocational and educational needs and create a plan that you would follow for 15 years. And throughout that 15 years, the, the main requirement is that you have to stay out of trouble. You don't have a GED, you have to get, have to get a GED. After that, you have to attend vocational class and graduate. Once you've completed the education phase, you have to work in either correction enterprise or in defensive wage job for 15 years. And after 20 years, you can on post-release conviction for 20 or two for five years. No system is perfect. No. Our system is not. By no means. But what it does... By no means is it perfect, but it does give people a chance. So really it gives you, it, it kind of does away with life without parole and gives you a chance to be able to come home, right? Yeah. Not only not to just come home, but to prove that you have changed, that you are person worthy of relief. And, and one of the biggest things that, that we want, that we stress to legislators when we have the opportunity is that this is not 
something that's going to open the proverbial floodgates and just release every person serving life without parole at one time. Uh, first off, the people who are over the parole commission that would assign maps to people serving life under the old law will still be the ones determining who can get this bill or excuse me, who, can, who can partake in this plan under the new law. Uh, without that, we would just be releasing everybody. But this makes sure people get out safe manner, that they have learned something, not just about themselves, but about life in general and how to survive. Because right now, I'm surrounded by people who don't have those opportunities. You know, and mm -hmm. the argument can be made that we don't want to release people who have killed someone. We don't want to release someone who has hurt someone. And I understand that argument. One of the biggest problems that we have in, in American society is, is that there's no accountability. Restorative justice is undervalued. However, they release people who have committed violent crimes every day. Robbery, murder, rape. These are people who are not serving life. And under the current sentencing structure, they are assigned a minimum and a maximum sentence. They have to comply. There's no, uh, you have to do good to, to earn your time. It doesn't work that way anymore. Mm -hmm. When they said truth in sentencing, they just gave you a hard date. So no matter what you're doing here, you're still released. You don't have to work. You don't have to get an education. You don't have to behave. What we are proposing is a system that brings all of that into play so that people can show how they have changed and, in a sense, earn their release. The plan we have now essentially doesn't give anybody any type of motivation to do anything. And so it's really important that we support this bill because we need more people to understand that you still have to, to work on yourself. Like even though you're in prison, regardless of whether you committed a crime or whether you were wrongfully accused of a crime, you still have to put in work into yourself to make yourself a better person. We always got, just like you have to go to work every day, you have to put that same kind of work into yourself so that you can continually to grow through each season. And so this bill gives a lot of people that hope because without that bill, a lot of people are just hopeless. And I hear it all the time. They feel like they will never get out. They feel like they will never get the help. So a lot of them just sit and soak in those emotions and therefore it makes them worse or it just takes them completely out of here. Like some people are just not even mentally capable of handling everyday prison life because they feel like they have no hope, especially when you have life without parole. And so there are a lot of people that are let out. There are a lot of people that do heinous crimes. But like you said, that's because we have no accountability. There's no restorative justice. And to me, restorative justice is a huge key player in the community that can make a lot of things a lot more better and to understand why that person committed that crime and to also help the victim be able to cope and eventually forgive the person for doing that crime to their loved one or to them. Um, because it's all about both sides being able to understand what happened and move on in a positive light and direction. I have seen it. I know a gentleman, and he was convicted of murder. The victim's mother reached out to him because she had questions that were not answered in the trial. He had a difficult upbringing, and that came out in the trial, and she was bothered by that. And I think typically... We look at the court system as an adversarial system where if you're on this side, you 
have to hate the defendant. Mm -hmm. If you're the defendant, you have to disagree with the victim's family who wants you to serve a, you know, some astronomical amount of time. And stories of restorative justice like, like this one, they prove that narrative wrong. Uh, in this case, she wrote him a letter, he wrote back, they started talking, and now he calls her mom. You know, the questions that she had, he answered them, and they were able to find closure. And, and in their journey, he was able to apologize directly to her in such a way that he could not do in the courtroom. More importantly, he was able to apologize to the, the guy's daughter. And he was able to tell her how sorry he was and to say, hey, it's not your father's fault. He didn't leave you. He didn't, you know, didn't shirk on his duty. He's gone because I took him, and I'm sorry, and I wish things could be better. And That's see, not going to work for everybody. No, it's not. But it can work for some. It can work for some. And I think, too, a lot, it, it, it's, it's a really good thing for the victim's family because I hear so many people in court who, you know, they first they want to get the death penalty or they want them to have a long um, sentence, but then after the trial is over, you still hear them say, I don't have the answers, I don't feel complete. And so with restorative justice, that gives them a chance to really sit down and get the answers. And it also helps the person who committed that crime to sit down and understand, because a lot of times crimes are just com committed out of passion. And so you're making an unconscious decision and you're not really conscious of why you committed that crime so restorative justice help you understand that conscious decision, that unconscious decision that you made. And so when you understand that in the light, then it helps not only you, but it helps the victim. So you're able to give them that close, that actual closure because the court system doesn't give anybody closure. It just goes and it stands up for the victim, I guess the advocate for the victim's family and the victim and get a sentence, and then that's it. And so a lot of people are still left with a gaping hole as to why it happened. And a lot of courts can give you a narrative or what they think happened, but they don't know because they wasn't that person or the two people at that moment going through that. So only those two people would know why it happened and why it happened to them. And so being able to have restorative justice is really important, not just only in the courts, in the community, and in prison because you need it in all three settings. And to me, this is just a product of just the government constantly de-resourcing our communities, us not having enough resources, you know, lack of support, equitable education, equitable jobs that help sustain families. That's why a lot of crimes are committed. People, a lot of people don't just wake up and commit a crime. It's, they're driven to a crime for a certain reason. I recommend a book called Until We Reckon by Danielle Serres. Uh, she's a friend of mine, and we've spoken at length on this subject. The thing about Danielle Serres, she heads an organization called Common Justice, which works with the district attorney's office in three different boroughs in New York. They handle violence cases, uh, and that's what they do. They pair victims and defendants together, and then so they can sit down and have a dialogue. And one of the, the main products of, of what her work does is that when it brings accountability out of the person who has committed a crime, it makes them aware of how they have harmed someone. Mm -hmm. And when they atone for that, they feel shame, and they don't want to do it again. And to date, I believe only one person out of maybe 700 has 
been convicted of a violent crime after going through her program. And I think that is magical. That is something that we all need to pay attention to because I think our criminal justice system right now is definitely not working. The question is, how do we make it work? We have the tools. We just don't want to utilize them. States like, I believe, Ohio has 40-something laws on the book for restorative justice. North Carolina has none. Mm-hmm. Not one. Yeah. They have a proposal, uh, but, you know, that just doesn't go far enough. And it's until we start trying other things, we're never going to incarcerate ourselves out of mass incarceration. That is true. So, Phil, I want you to tell the audience how they can help support you and Tim's bill because, I mean, that bill could be a game changer for North Carolina. It could decarcerate North Carolina at a little faster rate than what we are now. So please tell them the number of the bill and how they can support. Call to action. Uh, it's, the prison resource, it's the Prison Resources Repurposing Act 2023, North Carolina, House Bill 126. You can contact your local House representative. They are the ones who are in control now, and it is in their hands. It's in the subcommittee, and if you contact them and tell them you think it's good for North Carolina, there's a good chance we can get it passed, which is what we're hoping to do. Yes, y'all please reach out to all of your legislators and express to them how much this bill could help North Carolina. It could help the criminal justice system, and it could just make us a better community all around. Phil, is there anything else you want to share? Do you want people to write you or sure. share? Well, it, it would, I have a friend who maintains an email account for me. If people want to contact me that way, they can email philipvancesmith2 at com, and I will get the message within the day and get back to you. I'd love to hear your comments on how we can further our cause. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Phil. We appreciate you. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.